0: Well, good morning. Thank you for coming out on a 4th of July weekend. It's good to see you all. My name is Bill English. Uh, For those who are visiting, I am not part of the pastoral staff here. Most of the staff actually is on vacation uh, this weekend. I'm just a seminary-trained lay guy, you know, and uh, love teaching the Word of God. That's my life purpose, is to teach and preach the Word of God. But ironically, the Lord has called me into business and so uh, I do things with small business owners to help them uh, get their businesses more healthy. Um, be, be sure that you're keeping in prayer the youth who are going to challenge in Louisville. This is a significant time for them. They've coupled with Christ Community Church in Wasika and Grace Community in uh, Fridley. And the three youth groups together are going down. What a fantastic opportunity for God to work in their lives. So please uh, keep them in your prayers. I'm going to play a little video here uh, that some of you might find amusing, and then, uh, and then we're going to get into uh, what God has for us this morning. So let's go ahead and start that Trump video, if you would, please.
1: So we've got people lined up for questions. I just got one more, because you used the word Christian. Have uh-huh. you ever asked God for forgiveness? <laughs> it's a tough question. I, I don't think in terms of, I have, I'm, I'm a religious person, shockingly, because people are so shocked when they find this out. Uh, I'm Protestant. I'm Presbyterian. And I go to church and I love God and I love my church. And Norman Vincent Peale, the great Norman Vincent Peale was my pastor. The power of positive thinking. Everybody's heard of Norman Vincent Peale. He was so great. He would give a sermon. You never wanted to leave. Sometimes we have sermons and every once in a while we think about leaving a little early, right? Even though we're Christian. (laughs) Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, Frank, would give, a survey, would give a sermon, I'm telling you, I still remember his sermons. It was unbelievable. And what he would do is he'd bring real-life situations, modern-day situations, into the sermon, and you could listen to him all day long. When you left the church, you were disappointed that it was over. He was the greatest guy, and then, you know, he passed away, but he was a great, The, the he wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, which is Bud, a great book. But have you ever asked God for forgiveness? <laughs> I'm not sure I have. I just go and try and do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, when I take, you know, when we go in church and, and when I drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker. I guess that's a form of asking for forgiveness, and I do that as often as possible because I feel cleansed, okay? But, uh, you know, to me, that's important. I do that. But in terms of officially, I I, see I could say absolutely, and everybody, I don't think in terms of that. I, I think in terms of let's go on and let's make it right.
0: Did you catch the phrase... When I do something wrong, I don't bring God into it. Did you catch that phrase? Um, Thank you. But you know, Mr. Trump is not alone. I think that two-minute deal there represents tens of millions of people in America today. When I do something wrong, I don't bring God into it. Right? Simon Laham published a book in 2012 called The Science of Sin, in which he argues that the seven deadly sins are actually good for you. Listen to what he wrote in his introduction. Are you a sinner? The simple fact is that we all sin, and we do it all the time. But fear not, the seven deadly sins aren't as bad for you as you might think. Can you think of a single day in your life during which you didn't at least indulge in a few of these vices? Pride, greed, sloth, gluttony, lust, envy, anger? I bet you can't. The simple fact is that we all sin and we do it all the time. We lie and we cheat and we covet all manner of things from our neighbor's wives to their bedroom suites. But fear not, the seven deadly sins are not as bad for you as you might think. In fact, from gluttony to greed and from envy to lust, even the deadliest of these vices can actually make you smart, successful, and happy. At least that's what I'll try to convince you by the end of this book. What Laham is really saying is that far from sin being harmful to us and detrimental to us, what he's really saying is that it's helpful to us and that sin has a set of benefits that we should accept and desire and engage in. But the Bible never presents sin as something to be taken lightly. God hates sin, and no plain reading of the scriptures could could deduce otherwise but as much as god hates sins he is even more loving and more delighted when we confess our sins and come back to him he loves it when we when he gets to have what he really wants and that is a relationship with you and me God owns, you know, we're we're fond of saying that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? But what's the one thing that he doesn't own on this earth? Your heart and mine. He doesn't own those. The love that we give to something, if we're going to give it to God, it has to be freely given. And he loves it when we do that. That's what he wants more than anything else. I would suggest this morning that God's ultimate interest in each of us is having an abiding and intimate relationship with you and with I, just like he has within the Trinity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, many think that God's ultimate interest in us is in making sure that we follow the rules, okay? I don't think so. I don't think that's true. What God really wants is our love and our singular affection, something that can only be given to him, love can never be demanded. His holiness and his love, which are two parts of his character, those things create a tension for us that must be held in proportion to each other. If we emphasize his holiness too much and and the commands to follow too much, we're going to end up with a legalistic and rather harsh Christianity. And that was the type of Christianity that I grew up with in Indiana. But if we emphasize his love too much, we'll get kind of this watered-down, spineless religion that never talks about sin and repentance and ends up approving of nearly any action, no matter how sinful it might be. And we see that happening in scores of churches around the nation today. God has revealed Himself through His laws, and He has revealed Himself through His actions. I think His essence is revealed both in His demands that we follow His moral laws, and also in the numerous tender stories in the Scriptures. The like, like, just remember that God walked with Adam and Eve in the evening in the garden. And talked with them. Remember how tender that is? Do you remember the story about the woman caught in adultery who is not condemned? Do you remember the story about the prodigal son as he is returning? The father runs off the veranda and runs to his son. And of course the father being the picture of God. That's what God does when we come to him. And finally sending his only son to die for us so that we could have eternal life with him. What God calls us to is both a life of holiness and a life of love. And in both aspects, I want to say that we are unable to do this on our own. We need to be transformed through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and yet we need to make positive choices that will allow that regeneration to actually happen. It starts with us making a choice, and it ends with us having a transformed life. So this morning, if you're a Christian and you have drifted from the Lord, or if you're a person who has never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, this morning, I'm going to invite you to pay close attention because you're here for a reason. You didn't just come by chance. God brought you here this morning to give you an opportunity to hear about his heart and to repent of your sin and to turn back to him today. And this morning, we're going to use King David in the Old Testament as our example. We'll first go over how he sinned, and then we're going to go over the four things that David talks about how he comes back to the Lord in Psalm 51. So let's learn from David, and let's learn about the character and the heart of God. And in advance of that, if you want to open your Bibles and turn to Psalm 51, I'll be getting there in just a moment. But what did David do in his sin? Well, in 2 Samuel 11, it says that at the time that uh, armies went off to war, David stayed home. He was getting along in years at this point in his life, and Joab takes the army out uh, to go to war, as they always did in the spring. David stayed home. He was restless one night, and he went up to the roof of his palace, and he walks around late in the evening, and what does he see? But he sees Bathsheba bathing. Okay? Okay. Now, he uh, desires her, he likes what he sees, he desires her, he sends his servants to go get her, they bring her to him, he consummates a relationship with her, she goes home, and a few weeks later, she sends him word, hey, King David, I'm pregnant. And this is kind of one of those oh no moments for David, right? Right? And so he calls Uriah, her husband who is in the army, home from the battle. Now Uriah is one of David's what they call mighty men in the, in the scriptures. David had 30 of them. Uriah is one of them. These are his fiercest and best warriors in his, in his army. Uh, they would be the Old Testament equivalent to F-18s, okay, or drones that can deliver uh, tomahawk missiles, halfway around the world or something like that, okay? Uh, these, these are his, his greatest guys. And so he calls Uriah home, and for two nights, he tries to get Uriah to go home to Bathsheba, hopefully that they would consummate their relationship and cover up David's sin, and everybody would think that the baby was Uriah's and not David's. But Uriah doesn't do that. He's a man of, of integrity, and so what does he do? He sleeps by the palace gates each night, and he doesn't go home. So David, in his frustration, sends him back to battle and tells Joab, the commander, to do what? To make sure that Uriah is put where the fighting is the fiercest, and when it gets to that point, withdraw the rest of the army, leave Uriah by himself, and he'll be killed. And Joab enters into a conspiracy to murder Uriah, and that actually happens. David then comes back, after the period of mourning, he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. She comes and lives in the palace. She, she bears him a baby boy. Nathan, the prophet, after this, comes to David and says, I want to tell you a story, David. And David says, all right. And he says, there was a poor man who had a lamb and a rich man who had many, many lambs. And the rich man came and stole the poor man's lamb. And David burned with anger, Samuel says, And he says, that man ought to be murdered and ought to be put to death. And Nathan looks right at him and says, you are that man. And confronted with his sin, David repents. Now, mind you, the scriptures never hold Bathsheba to be responsible for all of this. They only hold David to be responsible for this. And there's reasons for that that I don't have time to get into this morning. Okay, David is responsible for his sin. Now, you wonder why, David, why God needed to get Nathan into David's face like that. Because we're probably talking here a period of anywhere from 10 to 12 months, I'm guessing. At least nine months, right? We know that. And so I'm figuring, I'm tacking on three more months for give and take and ebb and flow of life. Why would... God need to send Nathan to David and tell him a story and then basically point the finger and say, you are that man. Because David had been living with his sin long enough that his heart had grown cold to God and God basically needed to slap him upside the face to get his attention. One of the things that you will find as you're coming back to God is that the more cold and the more hard your heart is, the more strong and disruptive God's attempts will be to reach your heart. Did you get that? The more cold and hard your heart is, the more strong and disruptive God's attempts will be to reach your heart. When you live with sin, your heart drifts from God's heart, and your affections turn towards your sin and away from God. And that really is the definition of a hard heart. A hard heart is something that loves something else other than God deeply. I love myself. I love my opinions. I love my money. I love all the women I have or all the men I have. I love my things, my house. My prestige, my power, my position. You think I'm going to give all this up for God? That's a hard heart. A hard heart loves something much more than God. And so deeply sometimes that that heart will never let go of it. Happily, David's heart is such that he chooses to come back to God and he writes Psalm 51 to record his confessions to God. So what were the four things that, God, that David does in Psalm 51? Number one, he confesses his sin and asks to be cleansed. Number two, he admits that his sin is against God. Number three, he asks God to restore a relationship with him. And number four, he asks God to use him to help others come back to God. Okay? So let's uh, take a look at each one of these. First of all, in Psalm 51.1, let's start at verse 1. I will not be able to go through the whole psalm. I'm going to pick out certain verses and phrases and elaborate on those this morning. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. Let's stop there. He starts out by asking mercy, asking for mercy. Why? Because all of us need God's mercy to withhold his judgment. Now, the word mercy there means the Hebrew word means to show favor, to be inclined towards, or to show gracious kindness. When we sin, we get out of favor with God, we lose his favor. But David isn't just asking for some abstract idea oh, God, please give me mercy. He's asking for mercy in relationship to a particular quantity. Look at what he says here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? According to your unfailing love and according to your great compassion. God, that's how much mercy I need because that's how great and deep my sin has been. That I need that much mercy that is commensurate with your unfailing love and your great compassion. This wasn't just a little white sin. He committed adultery. He got Uriah drunk, and then he had him murdered, and he made sure Joab was a a player in that conspiracy to commit murder. This isn't some white lie. This This is serious stuff. And he realizes it, and so he starts by realizing that If it wasn't for God's mercy, he would have to pay the legal penalty. And that would mean his own death and permanent separation from God. And so he asks for that mercy in relationship to the unfailing love and great compassion. Literally, please show me gracious favor in proportion to your unfailing love and great compassion. That's what he's asking for. And then he goes on and asks to be cleansed. Look at the three verbs here. Blot out, wash away, cleanse. Those are all in, uh, in verse two, end of verse one and end of verse two. Blot out, wash away, and cleanse. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. Now the two Hebrew words there, blot out and wash away, are actually synonyms. The blot out means to literally annihilate. Okay? Annihilate my, my, uh, my sin. And the wash away literally means to trample under your feet. Have you ever had something, I don't mean to be a little rude with this, but like you've seen a bug on the ground and you kind of step on it and you just keep going like this until there's nothing left? Uh, Okay, you guys never did that. I grew up in Indiana. It's a different culture. We have different ways of dealing with things down there. Blot out, wash away. David is asking twice to be cleansed in such a way that his sin is literally erased. Now, note that he's asking God to do this within him. And why would he ask that? He asked that because he knows he cannot do that within himself. Can you blot out your own transgressions? Can you wash away your own sin? I can't. I can wish it away, I can distract myself so that I don't think about it very much, right? I can maybe repress it, but I can't wash it. I can't blot it out. That's something that I cannot do. There's a website, I just for fun, as I was preparing the sermon, I went to wikihow.com and I was looking up, I wonder what people have to say about changing yourself. And I found that they have an article out there called, How to Change Yourself Completely in 13 Easy Steps. At psychcentral.com, John Grohall, who's a doctor in psychology, wrote that you can only change yourself. And at the end of his article, he says, Save yourself some frustration today and try to stop trying to change other people, which is actually, actually pretty good advice. But then the rest of it, okay. Focus instead on changing your own faults and you may find yourself living a happier and more peaceful life. Problem is, we can't change our own faults. We can't do that. We need somebody to do that inside of us. Time after time, person after person, will attest that no matter how hard we try, we really are unable to change the basic parts of our personality or our thought patterns. I don't care if you're into Aaron Beck's self-talk or any of the others, Uh, you know, I'm a psychologist too, so I get some of this stuff. I always found psychology was really good at diagnosing and really not good at treatment apart from Jesus Christ. And I did nine years of family therapy before I got into technology. So it's not like I, I don't have experience in this area. See, the problem is that changing ourselves doesn't line up with our experience. This is why Romans 12 tells us to be transformed, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to be transformed, and only the Holy Spirit can do that within us. Then he goes on to say this, cleanse me from my sin. Now that word cleanse in the Hebrew means to be purified, to be ceremonially clean. What he's really saying here is, God, make me ceremonially clean. Please engage in a ceremony where you declare me to be righteous. Even in the Old Testament, we had the doctrine of justification. Justification where God comes along and says, okay, because you are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, I can legally declare you to be righteous. You don't have to have Romans in the New Testament to arrive at a doctrine of justification. Listen to Wayne Grudem. In conversion, we responded, trusting Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But the next step in the process of applying redemption to us is that God must respond to our faith and do what he promised, that is, actually declare our sins to be forgiven. We come to God and we say, God, have mercy on me and I want to confess my sins and this is what I have done wrong. And God says, okay, you are covered under the blood of Christ. I declare you to be legally justified. You are no longer liable for the punishment that those sins would have incurred. There's, by the way, (laughs) catch this. There's no other religion on the face of this earth that does this. None. None. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm one hundred three twelve. as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does this tell us about God's character? Number one, that he is unwavering, in how he defines sin and how he defines holiness. And what does this tell us about his heart? Number one, that he loves us so much that he is willing to transfer to Jesus Christ the legal obligation to be punished for our sins. That's how much he loves us. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Those of you who have walked with the Lord for 40 years, I know this is old hat, but honestly, a a, a mature heart should really be rejoicing in this. Right? Number two, we admit that our sin is against God. Look at the phrase here in verse three I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. You know what I think he really meant by that was I know what I did wrong, and I lived with it for 12 months, and it has been hell on earth. It has been a hellacious existence. You know, when we sin, we really do know when we're sinning, it's not like we get surprised. If we're honest with ourselves, we know when we're sinning, right? We're not stupid. We're not milk toast. We really do know. And when we keep on sinning and we keep living it, then our sin is ever before us. It stays with us. And we try to distract ourselves and we try to repress it and we try to forget about it and stuff. But the reality is, is that these sins stay with us. Michael W. Smith wrote a song about this back in the 90s with his song, um, Going Through the Motions. Listen to the lyrics here. Actions have been justified, all is compromised, looking for approval in someone else's eyes. Dodging all you really are becomes your greatest task, and acting out the lonely part you hide behind your mask. Victim of the circumstance, prisoner of the shame, but it's the double standard life that keeps you in the game. Taken by your own disguise, but when it's wearing thin, you'll do anything it takes to impress your friends. Never true to yourself, knowing, well, this is not like you. Fooling yourself, you're just living a lie. You're going through the motions, going through the motions. How many times do we come to church, and because we have unrepentant sin in our lives, We're just going through the motions. How many pastors across pulpits today are living with sin, and they're just going through the motions? I fear for the judgment of God coming on this nation, because in many ways, this nation still claims to be Christians, and we kind of just go through the motions. Against you only have I sinned. Let's go down a little bit farther. Verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In today's world, most people really don't care what God thinks about morality or his moral laws, but David is very clear. His sin and ours is first and always against God. We live in a culture where we have the non-apology apology, right? Oh, I'm sorry if you might have been offended by what I said. Oh, I made, it was an error in judgment. I'm sorry that I made uh, an error in judgment. But very seldom will you find a public figure actually saying, I was wrong, and I'm sorry, and I won't do that again. It just doesn't happen very often. Against you only have I sinned. Our sin is always against God first. And so what do we learn about the character of God? That all sin is first a violation of his character. I have an example there, but I don't have time to go into it. And what do we learn about his heart? And I love this about God, that he keeps pestering us about our sin until we finally confess and repent or Until he finally gives up and then in Romans 2 terminology, he turns us over to our sin. He gives us over to our sin and in Romans 2 it says, hoping that the kindness of God will eventually lead us back to repentance. He will stay after you and after you and after you about your sin until you finally repent or until he finally decides that really the only way to get through to this person is just to give them over to their sin. And maybe the total destruction of that sin will bring them back to me. Some of you are in this boat this morning. God is close to giving you over. Number three, ask God to restore your relationship with him. We confess our sins, we admit our sin is against God. And then number three, we ask God to restore a right relationship with us. Create in me, verse 10, look at this. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, that word pure in the Hebrew literally means unmixed. Create in me an unmixed heart, God. You see, our heart, a pure heart, has a singular focus, a singular affection for Jesus Christ. Remember what a hard heart is. What's a hard heart? A hard heart is a heart that loves something deeply other than God. A pure heart is a heart that has a singular affection for God. It is pure. It's not mixed. This is why in Matthew 5 it says you cannot serve both God and money. You can't love God and money. You can't have a mixed heart. See? It's a pure heart. Create in me a pure heart. This is a great thing to pray every day. God, create in me a pure heart an unmixed heart that has a singular focus of affection for you. And then he says, do not cast me from your presence, verse 11. Now that word cast is like, uh, you know, you're walking along and you just take a little something and you cavalierly toss it away. That's what the word cast means. I cavalierly throw this away. Do not cavalierly throw me away from your presence, God. Please don't do that. Please don't do that, God. I think the more you learn to enjoy and bask in the presence of the Lord, the more you'll understand David's plea to remain in his presence. I think David is finally coming to the realization that he's been fooling himself a little bit and that the presence that he enjoyed with God pre-Bathsheba that's what he wants back. And he hasn't had it for the last 10 to 12 months. And he wants that back. And some of you this morning, you used to walk with the Lord so closely and so intimately. And you've just kind of drifted. And you, you don't have the intimacy anymore. You don't have the closeness with God. You don't have the sweetness of his presence in your life And you want it back. And God says, come back to me. And I'll I'll forgive your sin if you'll come back to me. And then he says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice that David doesn't believe that he has lost his salvation. But he wants the joy restored. The joy of the presence of God. It's hard to describe, but there is a joy that comes from living in the presence of God and enjoying his salvation. We do that in part on this earth. We'll do it fully in heaven. And what do we learn about God's heart? That what he really wants from us is our love and a relationship with him. And what do we learn about his character? Is that he is faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him. That's what we learn. Finally, number four. We confess our sins. We admit that we have sinned against God. We ask to be restored in a right relationship with God. And we ask, finally, we ask God to use us to help others come to him. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Is this not the full one hundred and eighty? where David was the transgressor and now through a series of transformations he is now the one teaching transgressors how to get out of sin and come and live with God isn't that the complete transformation it's kind of like uh, Ephesians 4:28 where it says Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work and produce something useful with his hands so that they may have something that they can give to somebody else. Now, that's the Bill English paraphrase translation. Okay, if you go look it up, I want to, I paraphrased it. Okay, but let the one who's been stealing stop stealing and then let them learn to work so that they can give to other people. Think about a thief who's now a giver. Now, that's a transformation that only Jesus Christ can do. Think about a transgressor who is now leading others out of sin and helping them come out of sin. That's something that only Jesus Christ can do. You see, God's heart is that he wants to give us a purpose that will exceed any purpose you can find on this on this earth. And that purpose is by helping people come from a place of darkness. And in to use Colossians uh, 1 terms, to come out of the dominion of darkness and to be brought into the kingdom of the Son, Jesus Christ. To literally, Colossians uses the word rescued. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he brought us into the kingdom of his son. That's what Jesus Christ does for you. That's what he does for me, and that's what he wants to do for his neighbors and he wants to do that for us this morning that's what he does and this is the essence really of the gospel so we confess our sins and ask God to cleanse us right if we've wandered from the Lord or if you've never accepted Christ we confess our sins and we ask God to cleanse us we admit that our sin is against God We ask for a restored relationship with God, and we ask God to help us to help others come to him. I'd like us all just to bow our heads for a moment. This is kind of a sacred moment. If you're a Christian who has wandered from God and you've been living with sin in your life and that sin has been, you've been holding on to it and it's been gnawing at you and God keeps reminding you of it and you find ways to repress it and you find ways to get distracted and you find ways to avoid it and you've been avoiding God because of this sin. My question to you this morning is simply this. Will you come back to God this morning? With every head bowed, if you've been living away from God and you want to come back to him, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I am going to ask you just to slip up your hand and then put it back down as an indication that you want to come back to God. Yes, yes. Thank you, yes, I see your hand. Thank you, thank you. Hands all over this auditorium. Thank you, thank you. But there's another group who needs a question too. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, will you accept him this morning? Will you ask him to come into your life And will you voluntarily transfer your allegiance from yourself to Jesus and make him the Lord of your life? And Christians are praying right now, praying mightily. If God is prompting you and you've never accepted him as your Savior and Lord, today is your opportunity to move into the kingdom simply by confessing your sins and asking Christ to come into your life. Don't let this moment pass. Don't do it. Respond to what God is saying. After the service, there will be people up here with whom you can pray and they will lead you to pray to accept Christ as your Savior. But if you would like to do that this morning, I'm just gonna ask for you to slip your hand up and then just pull it back down ever so quietly. Thank you. I see your hand. Anyone else? Anyone else who would like to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord for the first time today? Okay, we can come back together now. As I said, after the service, there will be people who can pray with you either to rededicate your life or to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Elders, I'm just gonna ask that you stick around. Former pastors, if you would like to stick around and help, I would appreciate it. There were many hands that went up here this morning. If you raised your hand after the service, I'm going to invite you to come. I don't want to embarrass you, but I do want you to deal with this before you go. Before you go. Don't push this off. You'll end up watching golf and sleeping this afternoon and you'll never get around to it. Let's deal with it this morning. Don't let this moment pass without doing what God is prompting you to do this morning.